chapter 30. So we'll begin in verses 5 and 6. If you need a Bible, we've got some over here. Bryce, you can get one of these and follow along. But uh, have y'all ever, have you ever wondered or asked, or have you been asked, how do I know that the Bible has not been changed? How many of you have ever heard that question asked in some way or another? All right? Most of us. Now, let's just be honest. Is that a legitimate question? Because you've got, obviously for Christians, right, our belief that God is real, right? That God exists, that He revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. And so if God is perfect, then that means that God has given His Word that's perfect, and God is big enough to keep His Word free from error, okay? But for people who are kind of outside that, they look at us and they see us basing basically our whole life upon a book that is literally thousands of years old. Let's, let's just stop right there for just a moment and try to put ourselves in the mind of a person who has never been saved. They, might, they may not even believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but then they come to us and we say things like, the Bible says... And if we changed around the situation, we might as well hear somebody say, well, Pharaoh says, well, Pharaoh says, right? Right? Well, Aristotle once said, we're like, well, well, well big, big deal, right? So what we're going to look at tonight is how we kind of bridge that gap and helping other people know um, that the Bible can be trusted. So our beginning verse tonight is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. And the Bible says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a what? A liar. A liar, exactly. So you've got a chart there on chart number five. And over on the top left hand side, you see the question, how did the Bible come to us? That's a great, great question. So the first box that we have there is special revelation, divine disclosure. Now, revelation means to reveal, right? It means to show and open up something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to recognize. So now notice, who is the one who reveals? It all goes back to God, right? Yes, good. Jesus, God, the Bible. One out of three chance. Any, any, right? Church, Sunday school. Answer, all right, so good job. So it all comes from God. So we believe that the primary and total author of the Bible is God. God. Awesome. Okay. Now, right here, I mean, just that statement alone is really not that simple because we have something in the Bible, like if you go to the New Testament, the first book that you come to is what? Matthew. So the first book we come to the New Testament is is called Matthew, not God. Right? Okay, and then if we look, go a little further, we've got Luke, John, then we've got Peter, and, you know, places like Ephesians, and you go all the way through the Old Testament. So how do we understand, number one, the fact that God is the author of the Bible, but that people actually wrote it? Now, here, here, here's the contention, because some people will say, now, we know that God is perfect. The last time I checked, people are not perfect, right? Okay, so how does that work? You've got a perfect God imperfect people, even the heroes in the Old Testament. Right? Take, the, take, the, take the life of David. Many of the Psalms came from David. What are some of the things that David did that made him less than perfect? Cheated on his wife. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Murder, right? You also, you talk about the murder where he murdered the uh, neighbor, the guy who murdered the, one of the captains of his army, and took his wife. Exactly, yes. That's yeah, that, 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 wouldn't you say that's pretty low down, right? The man's off fighting for you, risking his life. You see his wife. You take her because you're the king, realize that she's pregnant, then you send word to have him come back, stage an event that it's actually his child, but this guy's so, I guess you could say, has such a high sense of morality, he says, I can't be with my wife because none of my other uh, soldiers can do that. So he actually slept outside on the front steps of his own house, didn't even go into his house, even to hang out with his wife. That's how high of a sense of duty you ride at. And so then... David couldn't get him to fold, so David sends out the executive order. When the fighting is thick, I want all the guys in his platoon to pull back so that he's killed. That's bad. But David wrote scripture that we as Christians believe is inspired and infallible. See, now, Jeff, you're seemingly making a case that the Bible may not be the word of God. Well, it is, but we've got to, we've got to take in all these factors. Why? Some people say, well, we need to doubt. No, we don't need to doubt. We simply need to ask questions that people are asking, then address it biblically. So here are, I'm just going to give you three uh, ways that people, that there's about 10 or 15 of these, but these kind of, at least for the most part, capture uh, what most people think happened when the biblical writers actually wrote down the Bible. Um, number one would be through intuition. All right. You can just put next to that, no bueno. All right. Intuition. This would be from humanists, all right? People who don't even really believe that God is necessarily real. It's kind of like this. They say David was there a long time ago, around 1000 BC, and he's looking out upon all of this beautiful, lush valley, and he sees sheep, and he sees, you know, the birds, and he just, he just has this human intuition to write, you know, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so forth and so on. They say that it was only human intuition. Kind of the same way that we get intuition when we see something. We say, wow, that's cool or that's awesome. Or, or you know, if, you, if you're a, uh, I guess it would be a Redskins fan and you saw the Laskins, Laskins game, you would say, that's bad, right? And, and have a dirge of lamentation, all right? Uh, number two, uh, this would also be no bueno. This would be from our liberal friends, and it would be illumination. It means that the biblical writers were simply illuminated. All right? What, what, and this, this, is, this is kind of, in a way, humorous. What are some of the things that come to your mind when, when, when people say illumination? He was just illuminated or illumined. Like, any, anybody? That's what I thought. Normally that, that, that brings to mind things of Woodstock and hippies and sitting in the yoga position, right, trying to wait for some great word to come. I have been illumined, okay? Now, the, a lot of liberal theologians think that the illumination came somewhat from God, but that they wrote down words that were not necessarily the words of God, but the words expressed the thoughts of God, Right? It's kind of like cliff notes with an asterisk. And you say, that doesn't really give me much Bible, right? That gives me maybe buh, right? Or by, not, not Bible, not the Word of God. So what, what biblical Christians, this is, the, this is what I believe, this is where we're going to approach it from, is that when God inspired the writers to write, you can write down these two words, plenary verbal, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, verbal. 
plenary verbal, which means that God moved, as the Bible says, upon the authors and the Holy Spirit was there inspiring. You could even say illuminating, uh, guiding, pushing them to write what God wanted them to write. Now, this is different than mechanical dictation. Okay. In other words, God was not using them like a typewriter, okay? Like, in other words, like a puppet on a, on a string. But this is really cool because this view says that God inspired them to write what God wanted them to write. But he took into account and even used their personalities. Now, who made their personalities? God. So this is really cool because you not only have God as the author... But God is using, in a sense, his, um, you could say, his diversity of peoples. Because you see that Matthew writes different than Luke. They wrote to different audiences. You look at the Old Testament historical books. They have much of a different thrust than much of the New Testament. So it's very, very cool. So what we have here is special revelation or divine disclosure. And then we have human authors with what? The Holy Spirit. Exactly. Now, what if you removed the Holy Spirit from the human authors? What do you get? Go back to the first one. Intuition. Or you get what? Illumination, right? You basically get, quote unquote, religious literature. Stuff about God that's not necessarily from God. And that's the key. You see, Jeff, how do we, what's one way that we distinguish the Bible from, let's say, um, and, and, and the, the Vedas, all right, or, or some type of Buddhist scripture, or p- the parts of the Quran. How do we distinguish? Well, one aspect is that religious literature is about God, but that the scripture, the Bible, is actually from God. Okay, It'll be be um, a good illustration here would be like if someone were to write a biography of your life. Okay, like if I want to write a biography of of Fred. Okay, a, a biography of Fred Tudor. Okay. My biography of Fred Tudor may be different than his autobiography, My Life by Fred Tudor. You see, that's the big difference because if you've ever read any biography, a lot of biographies say different things about the same person. But the autobiography is what we find in the Bible. It's God's, if you're going to, you know, like Facebook, the About Me section, that's what it is. It's God's about me section. So when you've got these two together, God revealing through human authors, it produced, what's the next box there? Original manuscripts. Okay, now that's cool, right? In other words, like when Paul sat down to write, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that. That was God moving and breathing on the Apostle Paul and what he wrote were the actual words of God. Here's the question. Do we have that original piece of paper or parchment or papyrus today? No. It's dust somewhere, all right? So then how do we know that we have the Word of God? Well, notice the next one. What's after original manuscripts? What do you do then? Copies. So here's where we're going to address the question, has the Bible changed? If you want to turn to the next piece of paper, I actually did this. Um, this afternoon, uh, we were just going to stay on the front page, but I had to give you this. I, I did a little bit extra research here. This to me, um, different strokes for different folks, all right? But this for me, when I had the question of how do you know that the Bible hasn't been changed? We're going to walk through this question. Here's the question. 
could the Bible have been altered? We've all probably asked that question or have been asked that question. Here's the answer. No, because of the manuscript evidence. Now, what do we mean by manuscript? It's it's the text that we have written down. And there are two parts to that answer. Number one would be the sheer volume, the amount of manuscript evidence. It is absolutely the Big Mac, all right, the Bible of every other ancient document. So we've got the sheer volume, and what's the next? The sheer diversity and language of manuscript evidence. In other words, no one group had control. Now here's the thing. If the Latin-speaking Romans, like let's, let, let's, let's say that all of the Greek manuscripts were destroyed, all of the other languages were destroyed, and only the, the Roman-speaking Latins had any copy of the Scriptures, could somebody make the argument that they got together in a little back room and got together and said, you know what, we don't like the Greeks, we don't like the, the, the Germans, we don't like the Africans, we Roman Latins, we're going to change this around when he said go into all the world and things like, you know, um, Jesus has broken down the wall of, of separation in Ephesians 2.14. Let's say that Jesus has established the wall of separation and that we're superior, right? You can make that argument. But the fact is that there were, was an incredible amount of, of manuscripts. So let's first off look at how many Greek manuscripts. Um, when you ever see the word extant in any theology, that means what we still have. Okay, That means what hadn't been destroyed. Um, we've got 307 uncials. I think that's there's <clears throat> that would be uh, separated letters akin uh, to uppercase. No lowercase, no punctuation. So this would be basically like putting a bunch of uh, uppercase, all caps, letters... Imagine if you, you had a page, right, of text, and then you scrunched it all together. You took away the separation between, right, that, that would be a little bit difficult to read. But one of the reasons why they did this is because paper was so expensive, or, or parchment back then. So, you know, for us, we may print up, well, what we have. But notice, if this piece of paper cost $100, don't you think we would use these margins as well, Right? The printer, Microsoft Word, would say, the margins of your paper cannot be printed. And you're like, print it anyway. This is 100 bucks, right? Okay. And second would be the minuscules. Um, we have over uh, 2,860 of these. It would be small little cursive script. There's also lectionaries. These would be collections of scriptures that they would use in church to just read the Bible. Uh, 2,410. And papyri. Papyri. Scripture written on papyrus uh, 109, that brings a subtotal uh, to 5,686 just Greek manuscripts. Okay, Now let's do a little bit of reference. Let's go below this chart and we see the statement with that asterisk. The next runner up out of all other ancient manuscripts is is Homer's, um, that's Bart's dad, uh, Iliad with 643. (laughs) A couple people got that. Cool. With 643 manuscripts. So that means out of all of the ancient documents that we have, that only one comes up to 643. So now we go to the manuscripts in other languages. We've got over 10,000 that are Latin, uh, 2,000 that are Ethiopian, uh, 4,101 that are Slavic, Armenian, uh, 2,587, Syriac, Pesheta, 350 plus, Bohiric 100, Arabic 75, Old Latin 50, Anglo-Saxon 7, Gothic 6, 
Sogdian 3, Old Syriac 2, Persian 2, Frankish. That's for the hot dog fans, a 1. Okay? So the subtotal for simply manuscripts that are not Greek is over 19,284. And from what we know, this, is, this research was done in 1999, and we have some more since then. That's why some of them you see today will say 25,000 plus, but it's 24,970 manuscripts of the Bible in all of those different languages. Now, here's what's cool to me, because I've asked these questions too. Could the Bible have been changed? What you find when you take all of these different manuscripts and you translate, let's say if we translated them all into English, do you know what they still say? They say exactly. They say exactly what we find in the Bible. Here's the significance of this. That if you've got all of these different groups, and here's the thing too, this is what we found, and this is what we found after all these years. Now think about how many you have to have after the, it began to be written in the first century. I mean like hotcakes. You had scribes who were under the, the, the leadership of very godly men who were making copies of the scripture and it was going out into all the world, right? Like Jesus talked about. And so you have all of this translation going on, but when you bring it back together, even today we have close to 25,000 manuscripts of something that started over around 2,000 years ago. That's crazy. That is, at, when you think of the decay of manuscripts, and if it's in any type of moisture, it's going to start to self-destruct. That's absolutely um, incredible. So, um, any, any questions about that? Um, no, it would just be fragments. Some are large, some are smaller. Um, I think the earliest one we have is like 125 A.D., and that's of the book of John. But it's, a, it's a, I guess it would be like of a paragraph or so. So, um, I don't know exactly, but it went through several hundred years because um, the church was being formed. They didn't, they didn't bring together an actual church council until a lot of... Um, like the Gnostic writings. Did we talk about that last week? I'm not sure if we talked about that. The, the, the Gnostics would basically say that the gospel isn't really that you get forgiven of your sin and you get a, a new nature. It's kind of like you're walking along one day and it just hits you, like beam me up Scotty type of stuff. And it's that Gnosis, that knowledge, and you just, whoa, I know. Well, how do you know? I don't know. I just was walking along one day and I know. What do you know? I know. And you also should know. So it's a very, very strange thing. So that's when you see the church actually getting together and say, okay, we all knew what the Bible, what the books of the Bible were and what they weren't, but now we actually need to come and make an official press release, so to speak. And I think that um, some of those happened in the 3rd century, 325, and, but that's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. And actually, I've got, a, I've got another chart on that, but I don't remember off the top of my head what, what the date was. Yeah, um, those uh, those would be the old Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said I think there is ninety five percent accuracy, and when they say that, it seems like well, what what do most of us think when they say it's ninety five percent accurate? 
What do, what do we think? Yeah, like if I've got a 95% free throw average, that means I miss five, totally miss out of 100. Well, that's the thing that a lot of us Americans, we pass over that language is not math, all right? And, and the interesting thing is that when you look at language, you can translate things different ways and it'll say the same thing. Repent or you will perish. Unless you repent, you shall perish. Now that's different words, different order, but it's exactly the same. And there's also different ways, like if you, I think we've used this before, if you pick up a King James, um, in the New Testament it calls Isaiah Isaiah's. Okay, that's one of the ways that you could call Isaiah, just like we could call uh, we could call Ben Ben or Benjamin. There's different ways that you can refer to the same persons, but in a lot of the reports, they'll actually count that as an inaccuracy. See, that's where it gets tricky. So, yeah, absolutely. And those go back, I think they said around 100 B.C. Uh, like, I mean, the generation before Jesus and the, the one that we had oldest next to that was around 1000 AD. And here, here's, just from that alone, you don't even have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Just from the fact of the Dead Sea Scrolls, from just an just a analytic, intellectual standpoint, you say, okay, a thousand years of translation, if you have 50% accuracy, that ought to cause me that, to think that there's some type of a divine being or miraculous, you know, Intervention, or, or Chuck Norris was overseeing it. I mean, I don't know. It's absolutely incredible, right? I mean, th- now think about all the errors. If we had people today, if we were texting or we were doing that a thousand years to try to keep saying the same thing, TTYL, right? Says Jesus, right? We, I mean, it would just be absolutely messed up. So I, t- to me, I don't know. What about you guys? What does that say to you when you have... When you have something that's a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript that we had, and yet it's just, it's pristine. Any, any reactions? I think it proves the Bible, you know? I think it really does. It shows its value. Its value in? Like, I mean, obviously it was not just waste. I mean, it, it was taken into account it was something special. Hmm. Hmm. Definitely. And one of the things that blew me away, we got so much of this stuff, but I try to keep it somewhat succinct uh, so we can get through this. I didn't know this until I started studying Josh McDowell's book, uh, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But he said that these Jewish scribes would actually, when they would write the three consonants of the name of God, which Yahweh, we, we think that's how they would say it. They had so much respect the name of God, that they would actually take a bath after they wrote as a symbolic way to just say, you know what, I'm not worthy even to write any aspect of the name of God. Kind of seems strange to us, but that's the detail. And if they found one error on the page, they would actually burn it. Can you imagine being a scribe, right? You're staying up late, and you're like, oh man, I'm pulling another, you know, third shift here. And then, you know, the last, the last little jot and tittle of the page, you know, it slips off, and you're like, ugh. And so that would be very, very frustrating. So, alright, so we've got copies, alright? Now, from those copies, what's the, what's the next process that we have? What's that? Yes, translations, okay. 
Now, here's, <clears throat> here's, here's an interesting historical thing. Remember what happened in the Middle Ages? Who was in, kind of in charge of Europe? It wasn't really the kings. It was what? the Pope. Exactly. And the Pope, one of the things... Now, imagine if this is all you had ever been taught. That if, if some guy in Rome... Let's say, let's say you were born into a royal family. All right? We're royalty. We're just there. Let's say we live in Germany. We hear about God. We hear about Jesus Christ when we go to Mass. We say, you know what? I want to learn more about that. How do you learn more about it? Well, you study the manuscripts from which the stories come. You say, you know what? I think that, I think that the common German people would really benefit from this. And then you hire, because you can, a scribe to begin to translate these Latin manuscripts of the Bible into German. Well, then the Pope finds out what you're doing, and then he, in your mind, has the power to anathematize you, which means literally consign you to hell. Wow. How do you think that most of us, if we actually believed that there was somebody in Rome, and if they simply said the words or wrote the words, then we could go to hell. What do you think kind of our, our respect and relationship to that person or group would be? If they had that amount of power. Probably going to limit how much you seek and research things. Okay. All right. Going to limit my research, right? Okay, good. It would make me absolutely tremble in fear, right? I mean, think, think about hell, okay? And so what you had here, when you've got the translations, is in the Middle Ages, it wasn't so much that the Roman Catholic Church didn't, didn't translate it. It's that the Bible... Anybody, where the, anybody remember from history where the Bibles were chained to? They actually had, especially in England, they, they had chained... You know, the Bibles were big, huge... They would have a chain around the case of the Bible to the pulpit in the church. And they would not let the common people hear it. Now, what are some dangers? And this is the argument. Okay, this is the argument. Well, common people don't know how to read the Bible because they're common people. See, we're the experts. We're the clergy, right? We're the, we're the quote-unquote professional Christians. So if you simply let us translate it for you, It'll go a lot better for you because who knows what's going to happen if we just let the Bible go out on the open market. Talk to me about that because that type of mindset basically helps. Power, power thing. Okay. Control. All right. I feel like the Pope would become like the God to them more than mm. Ooh, so the Pope would become God more than God himself. Good point. Um, it creates like levels of <coughs> We're not all like levels of humanity. Like we're not all humans. Some are just below it more than others. Mm. And um, like she said, would create kind of like a, a divine power in some people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it'll take away our personal relationship with God. I have to go to the clergy or folk or the bishop to talk to God. Mm-hmm. And you've got other intermediaries instead of just Christ. And I actually, when I was in Italy talking to these ladies um, when we were evangelizing, and they were we were just asking them basic questions, and they told us that there had to be a pope. Mm-hmm. But there absolutely had to be. We kept asking them, well, why is that? And they kept saying, because we're not good enough to talk mm-hmm. to God. 
Uh, thank you for saying that. I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head because a lot of this stuff to me is profoundly, profoundly sad. Like, I don't know if y'all have ever been reading history. I, I've got I get a big history book that I usually try to read a page or so before I go to sleep. And sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, and then I have crazy dreams, right? Like maybe I should, I should read, read something different. But it, it's profoundly sad because what kind of what you talked about, Ben, is that it removes the concept of the priesthood of the believer, which means that in Christ's eyes, we have different roles, right? There's elder, elder pastor, deacon. There's all sorts of roles. But in the eyes of God, there's no VIP for Christians, right? It's that we all come to Christ um, broken. And, and so I, I just want to make a note here that the fact that we have a Bible in our language, okay? And Chris, you've, you've got the Bible downloaded, I think Ben to me now, on our phones, right? We, we've got the Bible in English, multiple versions on our phone. I mean, that... And actually, I was going to bring it, I'll maybe bring it next week and I'll let you guys look at it if you want to write down the information and buy it. It's called The History of the English Bible. And there were loads of people that were killed. In fact, one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church did in Europe is they found some of these uh, rebel printers, okay, who would print. And actually, they would actually burn them on their printing press. Like if they found that these guys were, were on black market I'm just simply trying to print tracks about how the gospel is the way that we're saved or that to simply to print the Bible, they would kill them for that. Now to us, that, that is absolutely crazy, right? Like You kill somebody for printing something, it doesn't matter what it is, why would you kill them? Like if it was, even if it was an anarchist thing saying, you know, let's, let's kill the president and the Congress and here's how and blah, 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 put them in jail. But I mean, you don't just, you know, burn them alive, but that's happened to people all throughout history. So the fact, I think that we have an English Bible, right, like it's in English. Here's the even crazier thing. You can find, I mean, King James, New King James, uh, Living Bible Paraphrase, you know, New International Version, ESV. We've just got a plethora of things that a lot of people have never, never um, had. So let me give you a statement here before we move on to uh, the other question, the other question is, how do we know that the church, okay, didn't change it, all right? But let me give you this statement by John Warwick Montgomery. He said, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. What he's saying is that if you throw out the Bible, you've got to throw out everything. Because the next runner-up is Homer's Iliad with 643-ish copies. I don't know about you, but to me, unless you're totally biased looking at that chart, that's got to say a lot. I mean, what do you guys say? Just in manuscript evidence alone. That speaks to its popularity. So let's go over real quick before we close to canonicity. All right, canon right here uh, doesn't refer to weapons, but it refers to a to to a measurement. All right, what's in the box? What's in and what's out? So we've got the ancient writings. All right, and then they're tested for three things. Number one, apostolic or prophetic origin. Okay, how many of you guys think that Caesar? would be a candidate for um, authoring maybe a book other than he's lost, right? 
a lost pagan in the New Testament? What, what might be a problem with, let's say, Marcus Aurelius if he had been born sooner, being an author of a New Testament book? Mass murder, maybe? Okay. <laughs> that is. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm going to write about how I'm not the man. I'm Caesar. I can't do that. Okay. Yeah. So, so what? What you have here? You say, well, no. Well, what about you know the Apostle Paul, the greatest of sinners? That's exactly the point. The point is not saying that a person has to be a quote unquote saint, meaning they've never done wrong to be involved or to be a candidate for an author of the Bible. But what must be there is that they must have been born again and totally transformed. And that's what you see. This is so amazing. The guy who said he's the greatest of sinners is the one who wrote basically most of the New Testament. Now for me personally, stop right here for just a moment. That means when I sin, that my sin cannot separate me from Jesus who has absolutely saved me. Will it remove me from blessings? Yes. But there's that old song, grace that's greater than our sin. So I think just the fact alone, and once again we come back to these foundations, the fact that the guy who was the worst, he said it, not somebody else, I'm the worst of them. God used him to write the most. That's incredible. So we find someone who's been changed and born again, transformed. They're the authors, all right? Number two, doctrinal soundness. You might want to write here, does it agree with the rest of Scripture? Okay, does it agree? Because it wouldn't really make much sense for God, who's perfect, to have the Apostle Paul saying uh, things like, Jesus rose from the dead, and then maybe have some other author, right? saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There would be a little bit of, of problem there. So here, here's where we're going to talk um, for the rest of our time. Early church acceptance. Now somebody says, okay, we're cool with apostles or prophets writing the Bible, meaning God inspiring them. Secondly, we're cool with the fact that the Bible has to agree with itself. Okay? But early church acceptance, why, why, why do you guys think that that may cause some people to be uneasy? That that's one of the factors by which we understand what the Bible is and is not. Because in Revelation, it goes through the churches point by point, point after falls. Okay. And so they have faults. All right, less than perfect churches. Good. Uh, did you guys ever hear you know, a person who said, I, I don't like that church, it's got, it's got problems, right? Like looking for the perfect church, and the guy said, well, don't, don't go, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, because you'll mess it up, right? <laughs> you know, so never find a perfect one. Good, good. Anybody else? I mean, if, to, to me, and this is just personally, to me, it's like I'm putting a lot of responsibility in people's hands. Okay? People I don't know. Let's once again, and this, this to me, all right, I'm giving you guys some, some personal stuff. On that other sheet that I gave you, there's a guy named Irenae, Irenaeus. Anybody ever met anybody named Irenaeus? Okay. Probably be, probably be the... Seriously? No? Okay. All right. Be like the kid who sits alone at lunch every day, you know. Nobody wants to be my friend. Why not? I'm named Irenaeus. See ya. Right? Okay. I want you to follow with me here, okay? <clears throat> Irenaeus died in 202 A.D. 
He was mentored, if you see the bold there, he was mentored by a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was mentored by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was mentored by the Lord Jesus himself. So what you have here, all the way until the 200s, you've got a witness who was discipled by a guy who actually knew the apostle whom Jesus loved. Y'all, we're talking the 200s here. Now that seems a lot far removed, right, from Jesus who died in either 30 or 33 A.D. Let me read you this statement when Irenaeus is is talking about his mentor, Polycarp. He says, I can tell the very place in which the blessed Polycarp used to sit when he preached his sermons, how he came in and went out, the manner of his life, what he looked like, the sermons he delivered to the people, and how he used to report his association with John, check this out, and the others who had seen the Lord. How he would relate their words and the things concerning the Lord he had heard from them about his miracles and teachings. Polycarp had received all this from what? Eyewitnesses of the word of life and related all these things in accordance with the scriptures. I listened eagerly to these things at the time by God's mercy, which was bestowed on me. And I made notes of them, not on paper, but in my heart and constantly By the grace of God, I meditate on them faithfully. So when we read statements like we read back upon our first page, the early church, you're talking about people who were discipled by the disciples. So we're not talking about some group who just just read about Jesus from the scriptures, but you're talking about personal context. Let me give you two reasons uh, why we can trust that the early church was trustworthy and didn't change um, the Gospels. Number one would be that they are the closest to the actual events. Okay, We're not. We're, we're a long way removed from that. They are closest to the original events. Once again, up until the 200s, and actually Polycarp was, uh, was the bishop of, of, I guess you could say Lyons or Lyon in France. And uh, anybody who's seen the movie Gladiator... Okay, remember what the emperor's name was in that movie? Remember, Mark. Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> all right, nice, nice. His dad. All right, Marcus Aurelius. And in that movie, Marcus Aurelius is portrayed as the philosopher king, right? The philosopher emperor, kind of a good guy. Okay, real life, Marcus Aurelius, very bad. Killed Christians, killed tons of Christians, and actually persecuted uh, this main church there in France. So that's one of the things, you know, when I got, when I finished watching that movie, I was like, Marcus is really, this is the man, you know. And then you read history and you're like, oh my gosh, he was a moral monster. Because he, I mean, seriously, he was horrible. So, so even up into that time, we've got witnesses. And secondly, there's no motive, there's no motive for the early church to reinvent the gospel. There's no, bro, there's no motive for them to reinvent the gospel. You see, now how do we know that they didn't? Well, because most of them died. And if you had reinvented the gospel, you wouldn't have died. If you said, would said that Jesus is a God and not God in the flesh, the Romans would be like, well, cool, join our big pantheon of gods. Just add to it. 
we're cool with you, just, you know, burn some incense to Caesar because he's just another god. But the fact that Christians were continually slaughtered, even in the modern times, lets us know that they didn't change the message. Okay? Christians dead means that the book didn't change. And the message didn't change. And so, um, I think that's where we're going to stop tonight. You can, you can do some, some research on, on that below, but that gets into biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, and um, we're going to try to pick that up next time. I would like to give you